0: Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Number Two Testaments or
1: ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at Romans chapter eight, verses 18 through 39, a beloved passage in Paul's letter to the Romans, where he talks about suffering, the liberation from creation, the liberation of creation, the conformity of believers to the image of his son, um, and a whole bunch of other really, you know, fascinating things. Um do you want to introduce our guest today? Sure. Yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> Haley Jacob is our guest today, and uh, she is associate professor of theology and chair of the theology department at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. Not Spokane? Uh, not Spokane. Okay. It's Spokane, Washington. Uh, and I know that because I lived there for several years. I actually had the opportunity to work with Haley for a couple of years in the theology department at Whitworth, which just such a rich department with amazing colleagues that I really do miss. Just amazing people. How are things going in the department, Haley?
2: Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You've taken over as chair since I left. Everything has
2: to be fantastic then. If If I'm in leadership, it's all going smoothly.
0: (laughs) Um, No, just such warm people who are great teachers, but also... Great scholars in that department. And we're going to get an example of that uh, in the conversation that we're about to have here. Now, the other thing that the department does great is connects really well with students. Hale, you actually were asked to give the commencement address. Was that this last year?
2: Yeah, I um, gave the commencement address for the 2020 commencement. It had been postponed due to COVID, but okay. so this spring, yep. Gave what the- was
0: your, your message? But If you can put it in a sound bite, what were you trying to get yeah. across to those graduates?
2: If we want to see anything in the future change, we have to, I don't know, stop just going back to normal. We have to change what's normal if we want to see change for the future.
0: Right. So a new normal.
2: A new normal. normal. Yeah. Disrupting the normal.
0: Right. Right. What an important message. Now, Haley is also the author of Conformed to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory, in Romans, which was published by InterVarsity Press in 2018. And talk about
1: disrupting the normal interpretation of Romans <laughs> There we right? go. Yeah, she's
0: offering <laughs> us a new normal for yeah. reading Romans 8, which we're going to dig into with her here in a couple of minutes.
1: Now, Haley, what first drew you to studying Paul's letter to the Romans?
2: <clears throat> um, you know, that's a good question. I don't really know. I think with, with so much of scholarship, it's, it's a roundabout, you know, way of getting someplace. I think back to when I was in seminary, I, um, I went to Gordon Conwell Seminary in Massachusetts. And Roy Champa, who is a known Pauline scholar, um, taught a course there on the Old Testament in the New, and of course, looked primarily perhaps at Paul's letters. And so just in in those types of courses, that one in particular, but those types of courses, just always found myself being pulled to Paul's letters and then Of course, there's a particular richness to Romans, you know, the the fact that nobody really understands it. Everyone says they do, but they all disagree, (laughs) which means that they can't really fully. Right. So it's just um, it's it's rich and and deep and just keeps drawing me in because there's just endless questions. So. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Romans eight, which is what we're talking to you about today. And that's also the focus of your book in many ways. And for many people, it may be, it probably is the passage of Romans that they know best, particularly the section we're going to be talking about now. How do you see this section fitting into the larger book of Romans?
2: Um, For me, I see it. I see Romans kind of one through eight of, of Paul giving a, a theological rationale of sorts for why there should be more unity in the church in Rome. Um, which he gets to in the the latter uh, chapters of Romans and um, what he's referring to the weak and the strong I, I think those groups of people are the central focus of the letter and it has more to do with with pastoral matters with with how the church is living in unity and in peace together and so in in chapters one through eight and even nine through 11 a wee bit he he is, Developing the rationale for why the church should live in unity of, of, of what it means to be a Christian or to be in Christ, and so as he goes through all of that, he comes to Romans eight, and he gets to this point where he says essentially, we've established that we're all in the same boat, and we've established that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Messiah. And if we are in the family of God, then we get to share in that same inheritance or that same future, that same purpose that God had for everything in creation, including His own Son. And therefore, because of all of that, right, this is the end of Romans 8, we should be able to hold tight to it, hold fast to it, and let nothing else get in the way of us living in unity for the rest of the world's benefit or redemption so it really is just this kind of clash of symbols Mm. as he's gone through everything to say hold tight to these truths don't let it impact the way that you live together because the world is watching how you live together um so yeah does that make sense
1: yeah yeah In verses eighteen through thirty-nine, that the passage we're going to be looking at with you, um, what do you find to be the most challenging thing to understanding about that passage?
2: All of it. There's hardly a single word in the passage that doesn't evoke some sort of question in me that says, do I really actually understand that? (laughs) And and the moment you say, well, I don't know if I fully understand that, it's dependent on, you know, the next word or the previous word. Um, But, but, you know, in saying all that, um, probably for me, the thing that I kind of question the most is what's the relationship between suffering and glory? Um, mm-hmm. So much of my work has uh, focused on Paul's use of glory and the believer's glorification at the, the end of 830 there. Um, but but it's in the context of him saying um, suffering is real and suffering is to be expected. And it's what we do with that suffering. And so there, he he creates on multiple um, occasions, 817, 818, um, a little bit later on, he, he brings together suffering and glory. And there's lots of questions about what the relationship is. If, is it just kind of a, a temporal question, in other words, or a temporal relationship? In other words, is it the idea that, okay, we suffer now and we can look forward to glory in the future? Um, or is it, is it not so much a now and then as much as um, maybe there are two different types of experiences that should be had by the believer currently. Um, so yeah, questions about how suffering mm-hmm. and glory, what what seem like two opposite ends of a spectrum, mm-hmm. somehow are being held together for Paul, hand in hand. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And let's dig into just that question, because when we start the passage in verse 18, suffering and glory, both those words are right there. So, yeah, uh, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. So how is Paul in this passage helping Christians navigate their suffering? Um,
2: I think he's helping them navigate it by Placing it within a cosmic picture, right? If you you think about it, um, for those who know Romans well, and even Paul's letters in general, he doesn't talk about creation or the cosmos, um, but, you know, on a handful of level or times, and for sure, in Romans, there's been really nothing about the creation. He doesn't use this word. And now it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, <laughs> wait, what? Why are we now talking about creation? were we just talking about, you know, one, the grand, um, you know, there's no longer condemnation for those in Christ. And we're in the family of God, the Holy Spirit, and adoption, creation's groaning. Wait, what? Why? Where did that come out of, right? right. Left field. Um and and i think what paul is doing is he's saying to these christians suffering is real suffering is is part of the christian life and the way that we need to to embrace it or to think about it is to recognize that we're just small pieces of god's much larger cosmic plan of redemption and to and he helps them to see that future, which is why he's talking about hope, right? Um, a, a hope that's placed in an eternal time frame and a cosmic spatial frame to say that suffering is going to happen, and it's going to happen to every human. It's going to happen, though, particularly, or it should happen to particularly every Christian. But it's part of God's larger plan of redeeming the world. And when we can recognize that evil exists currently, which is the suffering that we experience or part of it, we can only make sense of that if we understand the opposite or the end game or where it was meant to be in the beginning. Right. So he's helping them to understand their suffering um, by putting it in this much larger context,
0: when which it's gives us hope. Yeah, right. And it's striking because you know we're also going through Job with other yeah, yeah, scholars. Yeah. And this could be God's message to Job as well. When God speaks to Job in the divine speeches in response to Job's great suffering is a similar kind of cosmic perspective of God's engagement with creation and Job's place within that. So, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that too much before hearing you talk about it now, but the parallels there are are remarkable and striking and, and probably worth exploring some more.
2: Absolutely absolutely i mean well if you think about it like the idea of suffering and kind of cosmic hope they're the good and the evil of all of reality
0: mm-hmm.
2: and in my mind they are the the beginning of the creation narrative right with with goodness with purity with wholeness and then the very subsequent evil and suffering and brokenness that then highlights the rest of the narrative up until jesus christ right and of course in terms of time frame currently and then here's where paul's going right is that future and of course you can think of the end of revelation um if we're gonna if we're gonna do any biblical justice to suffering it has to be i think within that larger context of creative good creational good
1: Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about that anticipation of a future, right? That Paul then launches into. So he says that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And then, you know, I'm expecting him to say for we wait with eager longing, but he (laughs) doesn't. Right? He says for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God or the sons of God. Um, Who are the sons of God here? That Paul is talking about
2: uh, the sons of God are those who so can we look back at verse 17 yeah sure because sure. I know this whole thing is on verse 18 but I personally am convinced <laughs> that we have to start with verse 17 okay all of this context is about what it means to be a child of God right um, and that's launched already in these previous verses but verse 17 If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Meaning, I think, um, that those who are part of the family of God, right, they are so by adoption. We've just gone through that. Um, And we therefore share in the inheritance that, that Christ has, not as... Children of God in the way that Jesus Christ is, but as adopted children, mm-hmm. and those who are adopted are those who are in Christ we in other words, we receive our our status as children of God through being in Christ, participating in Christ, having union with Christ. Paul goes through all of that in Romans five, particularly Romans six so the sons of God, I think for Paul right here, are those who are children of God through the spirit of adoption because they have gone through kind of that baptism into Christ, as he describes in Romans 6. of They have died to their old selves. They've been freed or liberated from the, their allegiance to evil. And they have now given themselves or given their allegiance to God. Um, And therefore, they've kind of, as Paul says in Romans 6, they've died to their old selves and they've risen to new life in Christ. Um, So the children of God then are those who have said no to their old ways, put off their old self and put on Christ, risen with Christ, having received the spirit of adoption now sharing in the inheritance of Christ,
0: and why is creation waiting for the revelation of these children of God?
2: That is a million dollar question. <laughs> That's why well, because, I asked it. That's why we got you on answer for us. <laughs> well, I don't have a million dollars for you, but um, it, it's the question that takes us ultimately to the end of eight thirty. And here's where I think there's been a lot of question regarding um, kind of this whole passage in general. Um, If we just back up for one second and see like a a bird's eye view, if you were to take a commentary, almost any commentary out there, um, you know, they're going to break it up into various passages. You'll have, um, what would it be? Verses 18 um, through, through 25. Or so, and then we get twenty six and twenty seven as these kind of random, seemingly random verses on prayer. Like what we were just talking about creation. Now we're talking about prayer.
1: Right, the Spirit helping us and interceding, yeah, interceding in that on language on our
2: behalf, groaning. Um, and then he switches to you know verse twenty eight, the the beloved verse of hopefulness that God's working all things for our good in the end. We're like, but wait, weren't we just talking about prayer and intercession? And then there was creation before that. So it seems if you're to, in other words, if you were to look at a commentary, they just kind of block it out and they, they do a a relatively terrible job of (laughs) saying how these various parts of this chapter actually work together. Now, unless Paul was completely know, off his rocker at times of writing, which I don't think he was, there has to be something that draws them together. And we'll hear, I think, what's drawing them together is this much bigger picture of what that glory is, right, Mm -hmm. that is revealed in the sons of God, and why that would make a difference for creation. So, creation is waiting eagerly for the children of God to be revealed. Because of the glory that they have, which he gets to in what verse? Um, at the end of verse twenty. Can I, can I read verse twenty? Yes, yeah, yeah, please. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bond to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Now, I'd actually argue that it's not the creation itself that's waiting for the glory of God. It's waiting for the children of God to be glorified.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Because if we go back to what the biblical narrative shows, there's some sort of creational, intrinsic relationship between humanity and the created order right? Not just non-human creation, but including our fellow human beings. There's a relationship between them that was good in the beginning, and then part of that brokenness that came in Genesis 3. If creation has been subjected to decay, it's been in bondage, it's been lacking its own freedom and liberation, it's been waiting for its own restoration right? As Christians, we're really good about talking about our own redemption, our own restoration. We're redeemed in Christ, therefore we are, you know, changed, we're given new life, we're given eternal hope for the future. But this is where Paul is saying it's not just about us as humans. It's about everything that God created back in Genesis 1. What Jesus did and is doing and will do impacts so much more than just us as individual humans.
0: So there's are you're seeing a connection here back to Genesis 128? So, Genesis yeah. 1, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So, Absolutely. is that, that's what creation is hoping for, for humanity to return to that kind of relationship with God's creation? Is that what you're suggesting?
2: Yeah, I think a wholeness between the two entities where you know for there in, in, in Genesis 128 and and you guys would be able to speak to this more um, in terms of what the Hebrew is doing there but as far as I understand, it's not a sense of having dominion in terms of control and you know some sort of abusive or potential abusive relationship, but rather help it to flourish, help it to become all that it's meant to be right like a, a healthy vibrant relationship. Um, that all we have to do is look outside and we, we instantly see that somehow that relationship has been marred. Um, so, yeah, there's something to that. And it, it has to do with that sense of having dominion, which is what I think Paul understands kind of our glory to be about. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have glory? I think it, it means to have dominion In the way that Jesus Christ has dominion, not in the way that humanity has for since the beginning had kind of a a harmful dominion
0: let's let's move on to romans 8 28 to 30 which are for many people some of the most beloved verses in the whole bible so yeah. uh here we have Sorry for what's
2: coming for that <laughs> I know.
0: okay well we'll get there so you know
2: we know that all things
0: work together for good for those who love god who are called according to his purpose and so forth now we've just talked about how because of what's Described in Genesis three, you mentioned this kind of breakdown of our relationship with creation and with one another. So, how can Paul be so optimistic here uh, that things that all everything is going to work out for good?
2: How can Paul be so optimistic? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and he encountered the living Christ. <laughs> I, I, I honestly like. I think yeah. that is right. That his 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 experience of of um, seeing and interacting with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. That was the moment that changed him. Mm. That was his resurrection experience. It's from that then that he can say, absolutely everything is a given, which then works backwards. Um, And so as he's looking at the suffering of the world, his own suffering, the suffering of his fellow Christians um, and, and just, suffering in general quite likely um he can think back on that moment Mm. on the risen christ that he encountered that he knows and say it is going somewhere it's all for something it it has an end but will verse 28 there um can we, can we, di- can we dive into that? Is it time? Is that where yeah, we're going? sure
1: we can do that? <laughs> this yeah. is the
0: time you've been waiting for. Yeah. And, well, no point.
2: It's not that I'm yearning to like
0: dash people's
2: <laughs> um, love affair with this verse, but I, I do wonder, and it could, I could be very wrong. I could be very wrong on all of this. Um, but I do wonder if we have misused this verse. Um, I really do. Um, I have personally had, you know, when I was in a pastoral role, had um, congregants come and say, you know, I know it's going to be okay. I know God is working all things for good for those who love him. Um, and and that's okay. Like, it, that's something good to hold on to. And God certainly is working all things for good for those who love him. I'm just not convinced that that reading of that verse is actually accurate. Um. In part because there are so many readings of this verse, right? So, um, if you were to pick up the, you know, in, uh, different translations of, of the Bible, if you can take a, an NIV, an RSV, an NRSV, an ESV, you know, just to get five different ones, they likely all have five different interpretations or translations of that verse.
0: Mm.
2: One might say, God works all things for good. Another one might say, all things work for good, and God's not even mentioned. And -hmm. there's a lot of reason for that based on the the textual manuscripts that we have, Um, but also it's just the, the way that the Greek is used there, it's just tricky. What Paul is saying there isn't so much that God is kind of working things for the good of me when I'm suffering or the good of you when you're suffering but rather that God is working all things for good, and I'm in the midst of that process. And God is using me and my prayers from the the couple verses before to bring about redemption from that suffering of the world around me. So, in other words, if we look at verse 28, it says, mine says, um, and we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Well, even if we ask a couple questions here, what if, what if good isn't coming my way? Do I not love God enough? Right. Because it says, for those who love God, well... Right. I think I love God, but if good simply isn't coming, then gosh, should I question how much I do love God?
0: Right. There's another Job connection, right? Because that's what's going on with Job and his friends, right? The friends are saying, well, suffering has come to you. So you must have some problem in your relationship. You must have done something to deserve
2: this or rejected or denied God in some way. It would be the same thing that Christians would be forced to, to question if we translate this verse the way that we always do, mm-hmm. um, I, I you know, I'm sorry, but for the the, the Christian um, woman in, in Yemen who's watching her child die of starvation, that translation and understanding of this verse simply does not cut it.
1: But Haley, does it require that you understand it as working out for the good in the moment? Like, it, can't you just read it as all things will work out for good eventually?
2: That's the way you have to read it. Right. But I don't know that that actually does anything for what Paul's doing here.
1: Oh, even with the interplay of present suffering and future glory, you don't think it fits into that.
2: Exactly. No, I don't. Because because the glorification that he's going to end with for Paul is present. And so I think it's an issue of... Of what's happening now versus what's happening in the future. So what if we translate it? Let's bear with me here for a second. If we translate it, we know that in all things, God works with those, not works for, but works with those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose.
1: Okay. Okay. And the Greek can bear
2: that
0: that change just... The, Compare the, it. It, the Greek can bear a change from for to with there.
2: Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yep. Very easily. Yep. Okay. They can be, it's a 50, 50, you know, right. or there's multiple options. Sure. Yep. So it could either be like, God is working all things together. Kind of they're progressing towards something good um, with those who love him. But it's more likely God is actually working with, He's partnering with, he's, he's, we are co-workers, co-laborers, right? God works with those who love Him. He works with those who are called according to His purpose. Well, what is His purpose for them? Mm-hmm. That they would be conformed to the image of His Son, that they would be justified, that they would be glorified, They would be the people who intercede on behalf of creation. They would be the people whose glory is used for the sake of creation. They would be the people who are part of the Abrahamic covenant, who are part of the family of God living in the resurrection life of Christ to bring about redemption that was meant to be there in the beginning.
1: Yeah, that's great. So if we keep reading then in Romans chapter eight, we then get to these, you know, this chain of verbs that Paul piles onto each other that people have, you know, spent a lot of time trying to solve, you know, contemporary theological debates using, which
2: they've gotten nowhere with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So he says this, right? He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. sorry he begins those he foreknew he predestined those he predestined he called those he called he justified and those he justified he glorified right so that's the chain that everyone's familiar with right yeah. mm-hmm. but before that so that's in verse uh, 30 prior to that he says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined and another verse that a lot of people are familiar with uh, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family my translations of the yeah. nrsv yeah. um So that phrase conform to the image of his son, let's zero in on that, right? You, you've, your book basically focuses, especially on this verse. Um, How have you noticed people tend to interpret what it means to be conformed to the image of his son, like people in the, in the pew, people, you know, at Whitworth or, you know, just scholars even what's the the kind of standard take on this phrase?
2: Um, The standard take that's super easy. It is to be like Christ,
1: <laughs> right, right?
2: Which means, <laughs> which means acting Christianly.
1: Yes. Right. Now you're not persuaded by this, right?
2: No. no. What, what, why, <laughs> what, what, what
1: what, oh. what, what do people do to get to that interpretation that you're, you're watching, you're, you're cringing as they make those interpretive moves?
2: <laughs> well, it's not so much that I'm even cringing. It's just that I think there has to be that follow-up question. And it truly is. People will truly say, um it to be like Christ. So so you can you can I I challenge you, go out and watch any sermon. Just type in, you know, Romans 830, uh, 829, 830, and and read a sermon or watch a sermon where they're talking about this. And what the pastor will do nine times out of 10 is he or she will say something to the effect of, isn't it wonderful that we're going to be conformed to the image of God's only son? we get to be like christ we get to be like christ how fantastic is that hold on to that truth okay so that's kind of the idea of what they say and i think well yeah that is fantastic of course
1: i mean that's what i thought before i was looking at your book by the way
2: (laughs) what does it mean mean to be like christ does it mean that i'm going to have you know um I don't know. Am I how, what I do physical appearance likely not. <laughs> Am I going to um you know it's it's, it's taken of course to be morally mm-hmm. perfect like Christ, to be holy like Christ. So the idea of my individual sin, right? That will be done with and I will be pure. I'll be holy. I'll be sanctified. Perfect like Christ. Morally upright, um, like Christ. And so that's, I think, you know, generally what they mean by saying like Christ, they just never really flesh that out very much. But even if that is the case, where do we get that from? Like it just Mm -hmm. doesn't exist in Romans 8 and it hardly even exists anywhere in Romans, at least in terms of speaking strictly about holiness or being sanctified. And of course, where Paul's going at the end of Romans is, is and in, in I think you know what's in the background even from the beginning is him challenging these Christians in Rome to live together in peace, in harmony, in unity, in love um, so yes, if that's what we mean by holiness, sure that's right. okay I'm, I'm okay with that
1: It's not like and Paul is unconcerned with holiness, right <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's not that he's not concerned with holiness he very much is. I just don't know that Paul's concerned with holiness in the same way that Oftentimes, modern-day evangelical Christians are concerned with holiness or that we mean the same thing by them. So, yeah, in this case, um, to be conformed to the image of a son, what he does in the Greek there, and he's kind of, you know, lining out all these big words, you know, foreknown, predestined, called, um, uh, conformed, justified, glorified, when you kind of rearrange them and line them up, what Paul is saying is essentially those who are called with a purpose. He's foreknown, he's, he's, um, he's predestined them, which is, I think, him simply saying that this is guaranteed. This is from the very beginning. Full stop. Like, we don't, we don't need to question really more what even those words mean. God has done this from the beginning. That's part of the purpose. And God's intentionality behind all of this from the beginning, God has purposed his people in order that they would be his children through their participation in his son, Jesus, and that they would live out that sonship in glory, that they would be glorified which is what he says at the end of 830, that they are glorified. It's not they will be in the future. They, they are glorified. What, what difference
0: does that make in terms of how the person in the pew understands what this means for them, right? Because we talked about, yeah. you know, the general way of thinking, well, I'm going to be like conformed to the image of Christ, which means I'm going to live Christianly.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Does this change... That or does it change the emphasis of what it means to live christianly?
2: That's it, I think will. yep, okay. yep, it change what it for me, in my own upbringing and experience, it changes how I think it means or looks to live christianly. Um, when I was um, when I became a Christian and was discipled in my teenage years. Um, I was discipled with um, a mindset of holiness. Holiness being or to live a Christian life means you don't swear, you don't drink alcohol, you know, you you do the right things, you don't do the wrong things, you practice abstinence before marriage, you know, like the right things and the wrong things and you tick the boxes. Um, and of course, within the midst of that, there was love. There was generosity. There were all the, the more higher values, shall we say. Um, but what was really emphasized was the ticking of the boxes. Don't do this and yes, do this. I don't think Paul cares about those things. I think what Paul cares about, what it means to live Christianly, is to live in the way that Christ lived. And this is, of course, where we read the Gospels. And what we see them demonstrating is that Christ lived a life of compassion, a life of sacrifice for the weak around him, for the ostracized around him. Christ was bold and courageous in speaking up against oppressors or those who who willed their power unnecessarily right? That's the picture of Christ that we see in the Gospels. Him as God, Him as having all power and all glory. So, I think what Paul would say, it means for us to be glorified, or us to live a life of Christ, conformed to the image of Christ, is to live that sort of life, a sort of life that looks around us and recognizes that there's suffering, recognizes that there's evil, recognizes that there's pain and hurts, dreams that have been dashed. Um, and, And because of the hope that we have as Christians in Christ, having been glorified, we can step out of our own comfort zones and be bold like Christ, be courageous like Christ, be generous in the way that Christ was, be compassionate in the way that Christ was. Um, That's what I think Paul thinks living Christianly is. And that's what I think he is getting at in terms of what it means to be glorified, what it means to have glory, which is to say what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ, to participate in Jesus Christ's image and glory himself.
1: Now, maybe we can talk about what glory is not. Yeah. Right? Because I think, you know, like most people, when they hear the term glory, they're going to think of something like a luminous splendor. Yeah. Something like that. Or, I mean, you might even think of God's glory filling the temple, though. So Absolutely. maybe God's glorious presence in that right. way.
2: Yep. When well, uh, they mean, kind how, of run together, right? It's, it's something yeah. that's visible um, to the eye. Um, right. Yeah.
1: So how do you, I mean, what do you make of those ways of understanding to be, what it means to be glorified here? And take us down your route a little okay. bit more
2: yeah happily because um, this is actually where where so much of my work on this began. I thought you know uh, I'll just you know look at this phrase conform to the image of a son and that's where it'll end um but it, that that's where it kind of stopped, and then I went around and and looked at everything else and then eventually came back to it because I found or I figured out that was probably easier than everything else um and it really did depend on glory. Okay, so yes, when we think of glory, I would guess um, almost everybody in the pew would think of glory in terms of kind of like a Christianese glory um, as that visible splendor, that, that luminescence, that radiant light. Um, we think that way because if you open a hymnal... There's hardly a hymn in it, right? In a, a proper hymnal. And uh, there's hardly a hymn in it that doesn't use the word glory. And that glory is always, and I guarantee you always, either going to be a glory of God that speaks to simply his, um, his power, his magnificence, right? His, his, his creator um, superiorness, mm-hmm. Superiority, or that glory refers to a glory that we as humans will see and experience in heaven after we die. Never is there a glory that's referred to or connected to humans um, currently in the hymns and kind of in how we speak as Christians and how sermons are, are spoken or how glory is spoken of in sermons.
0: And that that seems kind of presumptuous to do that.
2: Well, entirely, but yeah. will it's it's presumptuous because that's like the exact opposite of what the biblical narrative tells us. Glory is actually all about. Um, so there's a a larger section in the book um, that um, really it, it was the most difficult and painstaking, but probably the most important aspect. And where I go through um, basically every single time glory is used in both Hebrew and Greek, but especially the Greek, because that's what Paul is going to be working with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of map out or chart out when is that word used and how is it used? Is it used for God or is it used for humans or is it used for um, an inanimate object? A rainbow might have glory um, in some Mm -hmm. texts. So if it's for God, is it about his, you know, kind of um, theophanic, you know, glory, the glory in the the temple that they see? Um, Or is it um, kind of the type of glory that maybe Moses saw um, of of God? Um, Is it a glory of a human? And how is that human meant to have glory? Or also, if they're glorified, what does that look like? And here's the deal. Never, ever was it about a human having some sort of, or sharing in some sort of kind of visible splendor. Never. It's just not part of the biblical narrative. Moses, of course, sees the visible splendor of God, um, but he himself doesn't have it. Um, uh, Unless we say just the face, which is very different than how we often think about our future human splendor in heaven. But what it did have, the way that glory is used almost every single time in the Greek text of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul would have been using um, most of the time, um, it was the fact that that human was given some sort of status of rule or of power, of dominion, of authority. I'm right? like, so, Adam? Like Adam,
1: like Adam, right? just like Adam. And in <laughs> fact, and Eve, yeah.
2: you know, if you think of, you know, the, the hymn, Psalm 8, not the hymn, the, the Psalm 8 that often we know, and, and I use, rely on quite a bit because I think Paul relied on it quite a bit. He clearly does in 1 Corinthians 15, and we see it popping up in Hebrews, in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. It was a very important hymn, and in that psalm, the psalmist writes What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have crowned him with glory and honor and given him, you know, all the works of your hands under his feet. Crowned with glory and honor. So glory for humans throughout the biblical narrative. A status that um, brings with it some sort of authority or power or rule. And so, for Paul, I think that's the same idea. If Jesus has glory, it's because of his power, his rule, his status as the son so he's of God. The, he's, the he's the
1: Messiah. The, he's the, the Messiah. Right. He's
2: the Lord. Yeah. He's not shining. I mean, maybe he is, but <laughs> I don't think that's what Paul is saying
1: here. Right. Right. right.
0: So, right.
2: rather than us as humans or as Christians thinking, oh, one day, um, you know, we'll be glorified, we'll, we'll be brought into the presence of God and kind of shine like him maybe we will that'd be super fun super cool i don't know that'd be yeah. great but it's simply i don't think not what what paul is getting at here the glory that paul's referring to is more about who we are as redeemed humans in the messiah jesus who is lord
1: right um, so is this um the, when you talk about then the human vocation is one in which you know human beings are ruling and reigning right they have that kind of vocation sure that's what it means to be glorified then the phrase to be conformed to the image of his son does image then there also pick up that valence absolutely right of the human beings are made in the image of god which means they are made to rule and reign right and to advance god's kingdom is the idea
2: absolutely we're back (laughs) at genesis 128 kind of i think where it all starts Right. Um, let us make man in our own image, in the image of God, he creates them and let them have dominion over, right? Like there is um, a, a clear connection between image language and dominion or rulership language. Um, the word image doesn't appear in soulmate, but it's it's a commentary on Genesis one twenty eight, or maybe Genesis 1.28 is the commentary on Psalm 8, I don't know, but um, right th- there's a relationship between those two. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul goes back to both of them. And so, even though he doesn't use image someplace or glory someplace, um, he knows that there is that relationship between image language and glory language with rulership and dominion.
0: Yeah,
2: so, yeah absolutely. I think so.
0: Uh, just to make another Job connection here, uh, you know how <laughs> can't those, stop. We can't uh, stop. <laughs> Job nineteen, verse nine, he has stripped my glory from me. This is Job mm. talking, and taken the crown from my head. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think that Job is referring to Psalm eight there and using this as a oh. kind of accusation against mm. God. But I never thought about the glory side of that as well in terms of Job seeing that a a certain kind of calling of what it means to be human has been taken from him through this unjust suffering Mm, that he's faced. So I'm going to go look back at that in light of our conversation. So thanks, Haley. But let's move on um, to the end of the chapter here, because there are some other beloved words and phrases here that I I think we would be remembering miss to skip over Uh, so if god is for us who is against us in verse 31 or in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us in verse 37 and then the whole thing at the end that talks about nothing not death life angels and so on will be able to separate us from the love of god so how did these sentiments with which the chapter concludes fit in with the rest of the chapter
2: um, yeah, good question. And I, for that, I'll say, I don't entirely know. Mm-hmm. I think it's connected to the suffering, right? Like, cause he's giving them the hope for the love of God, never leaving them, which is the basis of their faith. Um, in terms of that thing to hold on to, we are beloved by God. We might be ostracized from our neighbors, from our family, from our, our government, um, we might be um, kicked out of our, our you know, kind of social clubs, whatever it might be. But the love of God is the thing that remains fast. Mm-hmm. It will not end. And so I think there's a connection between him Him giving them this reminder to the suffering that they're experiencing. But the reason I say I don't know is because we don't know that much about their suffering. And um, mm-hmm. we we know so little about the context of these Christians in Rome um, at this time, and I kind of wonder too, and and some have questions if if there's even suffering at all. And we know that there's there's no systemic persecution of Christians at this point. That's something that comes much later in 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 the kind of Roman Empire timeline, um, and and so it's not to, certainly there are those. It's the possibility that there are pockets of suffering in smaller communities in you know, those kind of familial or relational aspects of suffering, um, but it wouldn't be the systemic persecution by the government. And so, some have questioned whether, whether there's persecution or suffering at all, and maybe there's not. I also kind of wonder if, if Paul's not challenging them to have more suffering. Mm-hmm of saying, like, suffering is something that's meant to be part of our life. It's suffering that if suffering was part of Jesus's life, then ought it not to be something that's part of our life? We get that in the Gospels. You know, Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, you're going to suffer on behalf of me. The world will hate you because of me. Um, I wonder if Paul's not somehow reminding the Christians of that same sentiment. That there's something about being a Christian um, that should separate you from the rest of the world. And and sometimes that will come with with that aspect of suffering. And even if it does, and here's where maybe Paul is simply challenging them to step out a wee bit more than they have been. um, And he's saying, look, this might happen. In fact, it probably will happen. Let's hope that it happens. You'll know that you're doing something right. But when it does, Take confidence in the fact that God is on your side, that Christ is at the right hand of God and He's interceding for you, and that nothing, neither height nor depth, nor nor you know, angel nor demon, nothing that is in existence can separate you from the love of God. And that is the thing that you will cling to and need to cling to if you're going to fully step into what it should look like to live a Christian life. Yeah. And part of that Christian life, oh Christians in Rome, is to live together in unity despite the costs that that might bring with it.
0: Yeah. So, one final Job connection. Uh, is... <laughs> I told you you couldn't stop.
2: <laughs> <laughs> He's keeping so... us balanced. It's okay. <laughs> um, well,
0: we talked earlier about the logic of the beginning of this section connecting with the divine speeches and, and God. Um, taking Job and putting him within the breadth of the cosmos to help him understand his place there. Well, the end of the Job speeches is God describing these terrifying figures, behemoth and Leviathan. And one way to read those descriptions is God's claiming that no matter what kind of terrifying chaos you may face in your life, I am more powerful still. Right? Mm. So that could be a a form of comforting Job. So And I could see similar logic being used here by Paul, right? Whatever it may be, whatever kind of suffering you may face, God's love is more powerful still. And so you yeah. can hope as you face that suffering.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is the climax of Romans right here. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he's going to kind of turn a corner and kind of backtrack a little bit and do some other things with Israel that we still don't know what, what's going on there. And then he'll round that corner and come more to his pastoral admonitions of love one another. hate yeah. what is evil? Do cling to what is good. Um, like, so this is it. This is the thing that he wants to be ringing in their ears when that letter is no longer being read, when when they go to their, you know, their, we can imagine them kind of gathering together, the little house church and um, the, this letter being read to them. Um, perhaps Phoebe is teaching them, right? Phoebe's the the letter carrier. I'd like to think that she is teaching them. Um, Paul says this, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> it, it, when they leave that, that community gathering, where they hear these words of Paul, and they go to their own homes, I think this is what he wants to be ringing in their ears, yeah. right? Um, you don't write something like this and not want it to be ringing in your ears um, mm-hmm. you know, for hours.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, you know, I think it's also interesting that he begins by talking in verse 28 about talking about that God is going to, as you translate it, work with those who love God, but now he's going to flip it, right? It's the yeah. other way. He's going to talk about how God loves those who are in Christ, right? And it can talk about the other side of the equation, which I think is really uh, an interesting thing as well. Um, well, Haley, thanks for taking the time to walk us through. Romans 8, and uh, it's been really great to hear your thoughts on what it means to be conformed to the image of his son, um, and what it means to be glorified, and what it doesn't mean yeah. to be glorified. Um, <laughs> At so, least but, what I
2: think. I don't know. Who knows? I might change my mind tomorrow.
1: Okay, <laughs> but, well, let us know, right and then point, maybe I we'll, so. we'll have you back on to tell us about how you change your mind and why. <laughs> um, but drawing on the genre that... most books, (laughs) although there are books that don't do it, which I don't understand. Um, But you have a few blurbs on the back of your book from some prominent New Testament scholars. Uh, So we'd like you to give you an opportunity to blurb about It could be a book. It could be an activity that you've picked up over the course of the pandemic. It could be a movie you've watched uh, to blurb something so that when someone watches the Two Testaments and says, oh my goodness, Dr. Jacob, blurb that. I have got to try it. (laughs) What is that thing? Maybe it
0: could be one of those um, winter sports that you enjoy so much that I could just never get around to like snowshoeing or whatever it is that you (laughs)
2: do. The idea of people strapping liquor to their feet and so the idea of people know.
0: voluntarily going out into the snow is really beyond me.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you were never going to last long here. in no. this climate. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. Can I do two? I'll do them real fast yes, because I just think this is super fun. So one's going to be, um, for some readers and our listeners, and that's going to be, um, Scott McKnight's reading Romans backwards. I think this is maybe. Um, backwards on the screen, but Scott McKnight's reading Romans backwards. Um, To date, I think he's done the most excellent job of helping uh, readers to understand Mm -hmm. Romans by understanding what Paul's doing with the weak and the strong groups um, in, in chapters 14, 15 and how that then impacts how we understand the rest of the letter. And it's a very accessible book, um, very accessible read. Pastors can read it, lay people can read it, um, highly suggest it. So reading Romans backwards. Great. The other thing, which is just super fun. Okay. Listen, I have two kids under two. So during the pandemic, I've just been home with babies. I, this is like the most talking I've done in weeks, probably. And <laughs> um, certainly the most talking on Romans that I've done in months and months. So super fun. Thank you for that. But one of the things that I've discovered during the pandemic, and I'm going to move my camera to show you I'm in yes, my office do. and I've mentioned, I mentioned to you guys before, but we have two walls of windows in our offices. One looks out, one looks into the hallway into the hallway it's just a glass window and they frosted it only up until about five feet which leaves this large open window for people just to like look in at you (laughs) feels awkward to me okay so here it is and this is odd but i think it's super cool i found like this sticky uh, do you see that like rainbow colored you know, frosting stuff. You can do that yourself. I got it on Etsy for like 20 bucks and you just like spray water up there and stick it on. And you can get like stained glass colors and all kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, it's just like, do your own frosting. People
1: can't look at you and
2: they can't look at you, but it's just super cool. I've already gotten like loads of compliments on it.
0: Stained
1: glass would be really
2: good. (laughs) There will be some listeners out there that think, oh, I'd love to do that on my window at home.
0: Yes. Yes, or oh. in on your office. Or um, in your or, office yeah. so people yeah. can
1: see you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, great. Well, uh, thank you again, Haley, for taking the time to be mm-hmm. here with us. Um I think I can say it was a glorious conversation.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't know about
0: and, it. <laughs> and uh, dear listener, uh if you enjoyed this
1: conversation, if you also found it glorious yeah. and if you want to share that glory with others. If you want to participate in the vocation to which God has called you, we could <laughs> well, go We can might go that be overstating far. It a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but to, I mean, to the degree, I guess that this this conversation will help people understand what it might mean to be uh, conformed to the image of Christ, uh-huh. um, then please do share with others. You can uh, go on iTunes and give us a rating there that helps other people find this podcast. Also, if there were questions that you have about this text, this is a text that many people are familiar with that we didn't get a chance to address, then please do um, come to our Facebook group or you can hit us up on Twitter uh, and ask those questions and we'll try and do our best to address them. We're going to circle back in some Q&A episodes along the way. Um, Maybe we can even get Haley to come on and explain how she changed her views if she (laughs) ends up changing her views between now and that Q&A episode. But in the meantime, uh, we are just grateful that you would listen, and we're thankful once again to Haley Jacob for taking her time to walk us through this text. And until next time, take care. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kines are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plunk, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.